Harry Truman, 33rd President of the United States, put it this way. I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. 92% of Americans believe in God. 82% of Americans say religion is an important part of their lives. 74% of Americans believe in life after death and heaven. 72% attend services a few times a year or more. 60% believe God is a person they can have a relationship with. 39% are weekly churchgoers. But in his book, What Americans Really Want, The Truth About Our Hopes, Dreams, and Fears, Frank Luntz peels back the layers of, of culture and of hopes and dreams in the men and women of this land. And he says this is what people really want. They want more money. They want fewer hassles. They want more time. They want more choices. And they want no worries. Women as a group wanted more solutions to help with life's challenges. Men as a group want a return on their investment. More money, fewer hassles, more time, more choices, no worries. But what do we really want from God? That's a question he goes after in chapter 5 of his book. What do we really want from God? Fully 92% of Americans believe that God exists. But the answer to this question is hardly as universal. In fact, there may be as many answers to the question as there are Americans who believe in God. Even though the world sees America as monolithically Christian and thoroughly devout, we are, an increasingly, fractured, we are increasingly fractured when it comes to what we believe about belief. And it is because of this variety of different perspectives that simplifying what we really want from God to something neat and tidy is going to be very messy. Let's start with the easy part. Americans do agree on the generalities of religion. The overwhelming majority of Americans see God as a source of strength and a standard for good. Our nation was born of a search for religious freedom, and the United States is still one of the most church-going, God-fearing nations in the world. Fully 84% of Americans identify with a specific church and or religion. We attend houses of worship for spiritual growth and moral guidance. We attend for a sense of community, and we attend to stay grounded or to be inspired, and we attend to worship God. Yet there is a continuing tension between how much we want from God and how much of our personal life should be for God. On one end of the spectrum are those who'd like you to call them people of faith. Borrowing from C.S. Lewis, they'll tell you that the real question is not, what are we to make of God, but what is he to make of us? What true believers want from God is governance over most corners of life. Slightly more than a third of America falls into this category. In the middle are those Americans who'd be most comfortable being called spiritual they make of God what they find through experience. What they want is guidance on a personal level, but would kindly ask that a wall of separation between church and state be maintained. About half of America would describe themselves this way. 
the remaining 10% or so, reject either the notion of God or organized religion, or both. To them, the question is not why God created man, but why did man create God? Luntz concludes, but almost all of America has a deep connection to religion, and almost everyone believes in God. So what if God was to show up? What if he was to, to present his views and, and go point by point explaining exactly what he wants from us? Would that not be an arrow pointing at our hearts? Amazingly, astoundingly, 2,000 years ago, he did just that. He went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and he said, here's the deal. It's this, and it's this, and it's this, and it's this. And there's no, there's no real wiggle room here. There's no room for you tailoring a garment of religion made to fit your mind the way you want to think. It's this, and it's this, and it's this. And that's the deal. So do you sign the deal? Do you become a follower? Do you say, show me where to line up, and, and I'm ready to go? The Bible is translated into, in all or part into over 2,600 languages. And people of all cultures and all nations Read these words. The question always comes down to, is it what we want from God? Or is it embracing what God wants from us? The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Let's look at two words there that are juxtaposed. Crowds, disciples. Many, many people were, were following after him and, and surrounding him. And people liked it when they, they were treated to miracles. And, and people liked it when there was bread and there was fish and there was more than enough. And people liked hearing things that sounded right. There were crowds. But there were disciples. There were those who were, were listening with a different set of ears. There were those who were listening, wanting to, to embrace those words and, and pull them into their hearts. There were crowds. There were disciples. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. When he sat down, he was, he was identifying himself as a rabbi and a teacher. For the, the great rabbis and the teachers would go and they would sit. When they sat down, it meant now you will hear authoritative teaching. Now I will bring to you the wisdom that I have thought about and pondered and I will deliver to you. So make no mistake about it. When Jesus sat down, he was saying, I am an authority. I will teach you wisdom. I will teach you the truth. And because he was who he was, he was teaching everything from the very heart and mind of God. He said, eight statements proceed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Or how blessed are those who know their need of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this word blessed or blessed is repeated and repeated. It's the word makarios. Everything is good. It's a little difficult to translate, apparently, into the English language. It could be translated fortunately, but I like, I like blessed. And yet it also can mean in, in common language, it's all good. It's all good. Everything is good. It's all good. It's all good if you mourn because you will be comforted. It's all good if you're poor in spirit for you're going to get the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is about those who wait for God's timing, for the Lord's timing. These are people who do not need to throw their weight around to to make things happen or to, to get things done. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. This is about the great desire to see right prevail, to see what is right and good and just win the day, and to to want to know that, that the word of God and God's fulfilling his will in us and through us is at the very core of the essence of your life. They will be filled. It's a word that was used for the the fattening of animals. You you want that animal to be as plump as possible. You want that plump turkey. You want a big ham. You want to be full at the end of those holiday dinners. And you know when you're full and you can't have one more sliver of pie. You must walk away. You must push back. You are full. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled in a way that you understand that you are full. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. One commentator put it this way, mercy sets aside society's assumption that it is honorable to demand revenge. It is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or to gloat over others' shortcomings. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is an echo of Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who is able to be with God? Who is able to stand where God is, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemaking. There's an action. Making peace. Children of God. There's a an interaction there. God is the one who makes peace. God made peace with us, although we were alienated from him because of rebellion and because of our sinful nature. He made peace with us through his blood shed on a cross 2,000 years ago. And so those who make peace are called children of God because they do what God does. 
They go about making peace. They try to bring peaceful things together. They broker peace. God brings peace through his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so those are the the eight. They are oftentimes called beatitudes. But then this one that follows is, is a further development of the eighth one. It's not a new one. It's a unpacking. It's a, it's a moving in depth to what he has already said. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't make a mistake and think that we're doing something that's going to be popular. Don't join in error. Don't sign this deal misunderstanding that all things are going to be great once you sign this deal. You will be misunderstood. You will be called names because of who I am. But you don't have to worry because when you sign this deal, there's another place. Your reward is in another place. Don't live in this world for the rewards of this world, he says, as he points the arrow at your heart. Live for the reward of another world. In this first section, he flips the social economy upside down from power to gentleness, from take advantage to be pure in heart, from fly under the radar to live your faith out loud, not so much necessarily with your words, but with the way you live your life. And then he he starts to explain what that means, the way you live your life. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And the phrase in there about if the salt loses its saltiness actually it literally means if the salt becomes foolish. It's, it's, it's a play on words. It doesn't, doesn't turn well into the, English, into the English language. But he's saying... Isn't it foolish if salt isn't salty? How do, you, how do you fix salt that isn't salty? See, most of the salt back then came from around the Dead Sea. And when they would gather the salt from around the, the shore of the Dead Sea, it was mixed with, with other minerals and things. And so you had salt, but you also had other minerals and chemicals that were mixed in there together. So it was possible for the salt part of your, quote, salt to wash away, and then you're le- left with nothing. It maybe looks white and maybe looks like it used to be good for something, but it is good for nothing, and you have to throw it away. It's trash. And people understood that. They understood that if the salt washed away and there was nothing left, they took the residue and they threw it out into the street, and people just walked on it. And so he was telling them stories that they understood because they were living these stories. You are the salt of the earth. You make things taste better. You make things come alive. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if everything washes out of you, it's just foolish. Your attempts to live your life are just foolish. It's no longer good. It's that to be thrown away. What good is your life, he says. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, or in other translations, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light makes a statement. And what he's talking about here is all of our light together making a statement. We, we are to illuminate the world. We are to make things look amazing. We are to show up and people can't mistake that, that the people who follow Christ have shown up. That the people who serve him have arrived on the scene. Things are, are brilliant in a whole new way. Look up at all these lights. If there's only one light shining down, it would illuminate the room to some extent. You would still be able to see me with just one of those lights. But it's not about one of those lights. It's about every light taken together, bringing illumination as far as we are able to see. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about all of us. He's talking to those who really want to hear him. And he's saying all of you together are going to be like a light that shows up, and the light is the good that you do. And by doing good, you will show who God is. You will show that there is a kingdom that is not of this world. I'm so excited at the end of the service today. We're going to have an opportunity to do this together, to be light together in the midst of things that sometimes are hard and difficult and sometimes dark. Jesus defines the very essence of those who will follow him. We are to shine. It's supposed to be obvious to anyone looking around. Look, look at what they've done. Nobody asked them and they they showed up and they took care of things. It is many lights that shine more brightly than the one candle that tell the story of the kingdom of of God that is on the move. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he has this difficult section that if you read over quickly, it can be hard to understand. He talks about the law. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, he says. And that phrase I tell you the truth, is used 31 times in Matthew, 13 times in Mark, 6 times in Luke, and 25 times in John. It is the distinctive feature, the defining feature of Jesus' teaching style. I tell you what is true. I am God. That's what's happening. I am God. I'm telling you the truth about life, the truth about everything. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But over practices and teaches these commands, I will be called, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's, it's easy to misunderstand what he's saying. He's saying that the law and everything that's written here, all this that is the scripture before the New Testament was written at all. All this is still important 
Because it is his word. It's his word that leads up to the presentation of the word. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John wrote. So the words of God that lead up to the presentation of the physical presentation of the word are still important. Why? Because they tell the story of God up until this point. But then you must understand there's a shift that God has his word and his word informs, his word instructs, his word teaches. But now his word has become a relationship that you can have with God himself, which is why Jesus concludes this section by saying, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying you can't, you can't have salvation now based upon just doing things, living your life out, trying to be righteous, because what you've learned is that you can't do that. The law shows you, the word of God shows you, you can't live it out. You fail. There is a distance between you and God that you yourself cannot fill. You can't do it. No one can ever do it. Which is why in the fulfillment of God's promises, he sent his son so that Jesus fills the gap. It's God himself that jumps in the middle and says, I will, I will save you. You can't do it. I will do it for you. You can't give your life, even your life as a sacrifice for your sins. I will give my life for your sins, and then you will have life in me. And the moment you understand that, it's something so theologically magnificent that a child can understand it when it's presented to the child in the right way. That Jesus reached out his hands. And if you can imagine it this way, one hand he held on to God with, the other hand he held on to you with. And in giving his life, he gave you a bridge back to God himself. That's Christianity. That's what he's explaining to them. Stop now trying to live out the law and all these things that you know you can't do. And now I'm here. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, he's pointing an arrow right at our hearts. The crowds are there. They're listening. His disciples are there. They're amazed at his teaching. Here in this section, Jesus takes faith and life, and he brings them together. He says, friends, it's more than religious observance. It's more than traditions that we walk through unconsciously. It's a lifestyle of faith and faithfulness. And he wants you to know him. And then he quickly presents six ways to live. If you're going to sign this deal, it's going to be like this. We're going to live this way. Ready? We're going to live this way. The way you treat people. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And you think calling people, calling people names doesn't, doesn't 
make a difference or does it does it matter sometimes? I was watching Sanjay Gupta this morning. Yes, I watched Sanjay Gupta. And I like Sanjay Gupta. I like saying Sanjay Gupta. And he had a young woman on his program. And it was one of the saddest stories you ever heard. She was beautiful. She was beautiful because she had been bullied so mercilessly and bullied for so long in her school that she finally left school, got plastic surgery, so she would look the way a young American teenager is supposed to look, and so she could go back to school and not be bullied. And that's the effects of calling people names. And he said, he said to her, but don't you realize respectfully that you just did a change like on the, on the outside and, and that now these people are being nice to you and, and that's kind of superficial? And she said, yes. She understood that. And what Jesus is saying is, friends, you got to love each other no matter how you look. You have to care for each other no matter how you feel. Everyone deserves honor. Everyone deserves grace. You can't put somebody in a corner. You can't define somebody in a box. You can't create a cultural model for what somebody's supposed to look like, act like, talk like, kind of neighborhood they live in, kind of car they, they go to school in. You can't do that. This is not the way, this is not the deal. You want to do this with me? This is how we do it. You shall not murder. Anyone murders a subject to judgment? No. Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. If you're angry, take care of it. If there's something wrong, get it fixed. Another place in the New Testament, what does it say? You know what it says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is the way of the king. This is the way of the one who gave his life for you. Then he talks about the way you live out your faith. This continues. Okay, now, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And the truth is that if we did that, we'd probably clear out half, if not the whole auditorium. And I'd leave out the back door too. Jesus is making it real hard. He's making it real hard because he wants the best. He wants a group of people that are astounding, that are salt, that are light, that change the world. He wants a group of people where people go, where'd you come from? Why are you so different? How come you just showed up? Nobody asked you to show up. You showed up and you cleaned it up and you fixed it up and you took care of things. Where'd you guys come from? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, you take care of that first. We'll do ministry. We're going to do ministry. We'll get to ministry. We'll get to the mission things. You go do that first. Because it's, it's most important that people think we're a real different group of people. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still 
together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may, may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You're going to have legal hassles. Things are going to happen. You're going to find yourself in court. You're going to be in negotiations with attorneys. Keep in mind that you're still called to be different. Keep in mind that you're still supposed to be a peacemaker and that whatever they take away from you, it doesn't matter. You don't really live here. They can't take anything away from you. The way you live out your sexuality. Okay, here we go, guys. We're going to live this way. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, that word literally means scandal. If your right hand causes you to, to open up a huge scandal where your, your name and your reputation is splashed across the, the media from East Coast to West Coast on the front page of the paper, if that's, you're going to be in a scandal, don't do it. Cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See any of this lately? Here's what Jesus is saying. It's not the next hookup. It's not the next unrestrained physical urge that you have. Here's where Jesus is saying, don't watch Glee. Maybe he's saying it. It's up to you to decide that. But he's saying it's important the way you live out your sexual identity. And he just rolls right into the next one. The way you live out your marriage vows. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is in the middle of a culture where men were just kings in their homes and they could just send their wife away for, for any simple reason like, oh, you burned dinner, I'm tired of that. You're out of here. You're, I divorce you. Uh, your, your mother came, she stayed too long. You're out of here. You and your mother, get out of here. Um, you know, men were just like sending wives down the road any which way, anytime they felt like it. Women were so vulnerable. They didn't, they didn't work back then. They didn't have, have a means to care for themselves. So the, the widow, the, the orphan, the woman who was marginalized because the society was in such a desperate state of affairs. And Jesus is saying, that is so wrong. That is so wrong. If there's marital infidelity, we have... We're going to have a talk. We're going to, we can talk about that. But this, this cheapening of commitment, we don't do that. We don't live that way. I don't allow that. And he talks about this woman makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And a lot of people have not understood that. Let me tell you what that means. It means this woman who loved her husband so much in her heart, she was connected to him. And he says, you're out of here? She doesn't get disconnected from him in her heart when she has to walk out the door. And then somebody says, oh, I, I can't let this woman 
you know, be at such risk and, and be hurt by all the societal pressures that are going to come against her. She's going to be poor and not able to survive. So I will, I will marry her. In her heart, she still loves him. She's married in a, in a relationship of convenience so that she's not destitute over here. But you're causing all kinds of relational discord. And that's what Jesus knows. He peels back all the layers of what we look away from. And he says, don't you understand what you're doing to each other? Don't you understand how you hurt each other at deeper levels of emotion and feeling and commitment? Okay, the way you live out your promises, let's do that. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his, foot, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What he's saying is, you guys, you guys, you, you want to say this, say that, talk, 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 talk. Blah, 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 blah. If you're going to do it, do it. Say you're going to do it. I promise I will do this. Handshake. I'll do it. No, nope, not going to do that. Can't do it. It's not, it's not right for me right now. I'm going to walk away. No. He says, that's all you have to do. Don't make a big show. Don't say, on my, you know, on my cattle, on my children, on Jerusalem. You know, you can do it or you can't do it. That's the way you do things. You honor yourself and you honor those that you're doing life together with. Yes or no. And he talks about the way you live out justice based on love. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That is the, the word mila, means a thousand paces. And it was Roman law that a Roman soldier could walk up to you and say, Sir, I need you to carry my, my shield and my spear. I'm tired. Come with me a thousand paces. And he would have to come with me a thousand paces and carry my shield and my spear. It was the law. I could pick anybody I wanted to if I'm a Roman soldier. And what does Jesus say? A Roman soldier asked you to do that? You go too. We get to the end of the thousand. I'm going another thousand with you, buddy. How do you like that? I like, let me tell you about this God that I know. Pretty soon, Roman soldiers stop asking people to carry their stuff. <laughs> Why is Jesus saying this? Because we don't really live here. Because nobody can take anything from you if you understand. He's pointing an arrow at your heart. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? 
Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is saying, be salt, be light, be astounding, be amazing. Let the world say, where do these people come from? And this this idea of being perfect has has befuddled people for decades and and centuries. It, It doesn't mean be perfect. It means to be like God. That's all it means. Be like God. It's an idea that conjures up spiritual maturity. Disciples are to be different. Followers of Christ are to be different. You are going to think like God would think. You're going to act like he would act. And people are going to say, who are these people? Who is this Jesus? Jesus is basing all of his teaching on three facts. Fact number one, he is God. It's a pretty good fact. Number two, there is another place. It's not just what you have here. Jesus talked about storing up treasures in heaven. Oh my goodness. And the third thing he bases all his teaching on is you are going to die and your life will be evaluated. You're going to stand before him one day and know if you were salt, if you were light, if you lived like you had nothing to lose, if you lived like they couldn't really take anything away from you anyway. So I'll, I'll go another while, another mile. You can have my coat. Here, here's my other cheek. I'll not come to church today. I'll go see the person I need to ask forgiveness from, and then I'll come back to church. Women wanted more solutions to help with life's challenges. Men want a return on their investment. God wants more solutions to help with his challenges. God wants a return on his investment. He wants you. He points an arrow at your heart. He says, here's the deal. We're going to do it this way. You want to do it this way? Then follow me. I do not believe there's a problem in this country or the world today which cannot be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that too. And I believe one more thing. The other day, it was Monday, and uh, on Mondays, I try to find a, a quiet space in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, you don't talk a whole lot, and just, just kind of starting to unwind after the, the weekend. And, and so I was in a coffee shop down at the beach. I was wearing this suit, and I never wear this suit on Monday. The suit with the hole in the pocket, I'm still wearing it, still got the hole in the pocket. Two people today volunteered to sew the, 
the, the hole. You know, I'm just trying to figure out how they can do that while I'm walking. I don't, haven't been able to figure that out yet. But I'm, I'm, there's no reason. I don't wear this suit on, on Mondays. But I'm wearing this suit. And in this suit, and I had it last Sunday too, in this pocket, I had a cross that I carried for a year. I don't have the cross anymore. I had a cross. I carried this cross in this pocket for one year. And I carried it there because it was a cross that had a little sort of a chip out of the cross beam. And I thought, this cross is different. This cross is special. And I kept it in this pocket for almost a year. So I'm in this suit with this cross. Don't wear the suit. It's Monday. Here it is. A woman walks in the coffee shop. And she knows me. She walks right up to me. She says, you wouldn't happen to have a cross on you, would you? I knew immediately, yeah, I have a cross. I've had it there for a year. She said, I'm, I'm drywalling my house today, and I want to put a cross in the wall of the house before I put the drywall over it. I want that to be like a blessing. I took the cross out. I said, well, it has sort of a little, it's cut off here. It's a little, she goes, oh, I like it. I like that. I like that it's that way. I said, well, here, you can have the cross. She took it home and made it a blessing in her house. I believe in a God that knows what's going on every single minute. He knows when i got to wear this suit on a Monday, and I don't even know why I'm wearing it on a Monday. He knows to put a cross in my pocket. A year before a woman needs the cross as a blessing in her house, I believe a God who knows everything about you today, and he knows the thing that you need most of today is to sign the deal and to say there's nothing anybody can take away from me. I will be salt. I will be light for you. I will live for you. You died for me. I give myself to you. And that's what the king said one day when he went up on a hill and crowds came around. And his disciples drew close because they knew they had nothing to lose. Oh, Heavenly Father, allow us to live in this world as people who are different. Allow us to, to get what you're saying to us today. The order of the kingdom as declared by the king. Allow us to serve you well, Father. Thank you for allowing us the honor of serving others. We give our lives to you again today. In the name of the King, in Jesus' name, amen. Good day, God bless you.